If you would, please open in your Bibles to two texts. You see them in your bulletin. To Nehemiah chapter 8 and John chapter 7. The title of the sermon is A Time for Celebration. If you would, please stand together that we might visibly express our reverence for God's written word. This morning we read from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 18, and then we'll turn to John 7, and there read verses 7 through 39. But as we do so, remember that as Scripture says elsewhere, the grass outside will wither and flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So God's people strive to hear and heed it faithfully together. Let's do that now. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olives, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booze, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in the booze, for from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now if you would please turn over to John chapter 7. So turning there, <clears throat> John 7 through 9 is when Jesus comes to the temple during this very same feast. I'll make that connection later. So John 7, verses 7, 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Please pray with me. Our great God in heaven, we come to you now and expect that you will do exactly what you have promised to do. For you have said in your word that you will bless the reading and especially the preaching of the word of God in such a way that sinners would be turned savingly unto Christ for salvation and that the people of God would be built up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation and that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit would be glorified and enjoyed through the ministry of this means of grace. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Some would say that there are only two kinds of people in this world, those that love camping and those that do not. It's a little bit of playfulness here in our text today as we look at uh, something of a childish adventure, it will seem at first, of a camping trip. 
And I know that there are likely two kinds of people in this room. Those of you that uh, think that it would be just a fantastic way to spend your vacation, to go out in the wilderness far away from people and electricity and running water and refrigerators. And, and, and for you, that would be fantastic fun. And, there, and then there are those who are in their right mind who prefer things like hotels and air conditioning and nice views and and maybe a view of the trees off in the distance. But when you think about camping, what are the essential ingredients of a camping trip? What are, are, if there are four things that you have to have when you go camping? Well, I'm sure someone's going to come and tell me other things that need to be there, but these are the four I'm going to offer, and they connect to our text. Four essentials for camping are water, light, Shelter and food, and one could argue duct tape. (laughs) We're going to work through our text today with the three points that you have there in your outline. A beautiful discovery, a beautiful celebration, and then ultimately and climactically, our beautiful Savior. So our, our camping trip begins, like so many do, with a remarkable discovery. Uh, When one begins such a trip, the planning of it usually involves going into the shed or the garage or up in the attic and pulling down that old sleeping bag that indicates how long it's been unused simply by the smell that is upon it. Our text, however, begins a little bit differently. There is a remarkable discovery, but not of that of an old tent or a barely working Coleman stove, rather the much working word of God. If you were here with us last week or take the time to skim backwards, uh, you see there that there is a certain sense in which in the last text we find the people of God standing there for six hours, not only reading the word of God, but perhaps even better put, being read by it. It's not simply that they were there opening up the word, but in many ways it was the word of God that was opening them up, surgically exposing those deeds left undone. This text, in a similar manner, shows the people of God finding out the word of God in a certain sense, but the word of God finds them out and exposes the fact that they have not gone camping in a very long time, at least not camping as God describes it. For as they read the law, they begin to hear the faint echo of something from the past, something that you and I likely know very little about, and it is the Feast of Booths, the Bible's way of talking about camping. The next point, point two in our outline, we'll talk about the feast itself. But for a few minutes, I simply want to focus on the discovery or the rediscovery of the Feast of Booths here in Nehemiah 8. Ezra and Nehemiah keep giving us dates. So we know at the beginning of our text, it is the second day of Tishri, the second day of the feast. And again, this becomes important later. Uh, This is uh, the month of September or October on our our calendar when the discovery is made. If the last scene painted a picture of the people of God standing corporately to hear the word of God, uh, young and old, men and women, children, all those who could understand, this text actually paints a different scene. It's not the entire congregation of Israel, young and old, men and women, children as well. It's actually just the men. Don't check out on me. Just stay with me here. Uh, It's actually just the men. The text tells us early and clearly that it was the heads of households that were there now for the particular reading of the Feast of Booze. And there's a little bit of mercy to be found in that. Uh, If you found it a bit of a stretch to imagine the people of God, young and old, men and women, children included, standing for six straight hours, one might easily imagine they could need a break. 
maybe the next day, so to speak, they would have a bit of a respite. Children certainly need downtime, and their parents could surely use the reprieve. Uh, So there's something of a gentle kindness here that the men, in a certain sense, have been called back on the second day. And one might argue in a a very uh, soft way that this is something of the Bible's first version of a men's Bible study. You have a men's meeting. The unlikely beginning of men's Bible studies or organized large events like Promise Keepers, a ministry that I'm old enough to remember, uh, a ministry to men that began well and ended poorly, unfortunately, uh, is a good thing for women to have Bible studies. And our church has an excellent one. So I hear I'm not allowed to go. So I only I only know this by way of rumor. But the but the reputation, the word on the street is really positive about our women's Bible studies. Those are fitting healthy and appropriate. It's also a good thing for our young people to gather together to study God's word. But it's also important, and I really want to highlight this, it is not only important at a practical level, it is biblical for men to get together around the word of God. It's in the Bible. This is a little plug for our men's study that is about to resume here in the fall and has been a fantastically edifying thing in the past even comes with a really, really good breakfast cooked by royalty. (laughs) But it's important for men to gather together around God's word. And again, uh, when you pause and think about it, even if you just look around, the point is easily made. We live in a world that has lost many things, beginning with its mind. We've lost our definitions of gender, these things, these categories slipping through our fingers. We've lost our sense of masculinity. We've lost men, to make it very simple. And so in Nehemiah chapter 8, something uh, beautiful happens, something so simple it might be easy to overlook that men gathered together around the word of God and they responded in a, in a really remarkable way. They weren't simply studying the word. The word was studying and searching them. This is why it is a good thing. It's why it's good for men to gather this way. And not simply for men to hear the word of God, capture this point, uh, but to submit to it. That men need to submit to the word of God. That is very biblical. It is good for men to gather and listen, and it is even better when they submit to it as they do in Nehemiah chapter 8. How many men have a skewed version of what it means to be masculine? How many men have a skewed version of what it means uh, to even apply the word submission in the context of their families, to stretch it a bit? How many men expect their wives to submit to them while they themselves submit to no one? Nehemiah 8, men were searched by the word of God, and they responded and humble and submission, and they do what men should do. They plan a feast, and they go camping. (laughs) Well, something like that. But there is something here about a camping trip, and it's a very uh, God-centered, spiritually renewing camping trip, and that's what we're going to look at now in our second point. It's a longer point than the first, so if you were kind of excited about how brief that was, just remain calm. Point two, a beautiful celebration I want to talk a lot about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm going to guess that for most of us, uh, this will be new information. I learned a lot. Uh, I was quite happy to take off the shelf a book that was given to me decades ago on the Feast 
of the Lord, written by uh, two converted Jewish men that are scholars in the Feast of Israel, and just really a fantastic, edifying little read. But in order to appreciate what's going on in our text, and perhaps even more importantly, Jesus' relationship to this feast and to us, let's talk about the Feast of Booths. This is, in our text here, uh, one of Israel's high watermark feasts called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It is the seventh and final feast. It is arguably one of Israel's most joyful feasts. There was a proverb, I'm going to quote this twice in the sermon. There's a proverb from an ancient rabbi that he who has not beheld the joy of drawing of water at the Feast of Booths has never seen joy in his life. We don't quite have feasts and celebrations the way that they did in the Old Testament. But when you pause and think about it, in a world without books, imagine that, a world without iPads and TVs, I know I've completely lost you, in in a world without uh, things to look at on screens, you know what you actually did? You lived the drama rather than simply watch it. And that's what the feasts were. They were Israel's way, they were God's way of having his people uh, dramatically embody the story of the covenant in ways that were sometimes full of joy and even playfulness, like a camping trip. So this is the most prominent and the most mentioned feast of all the feasts in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament combined. The Hebrew word from which we get the Feast of Booth is Sukkot. It comes into the English word tabernacles, which is a Latin word, tabernaculum. That's where we get the word tabernacle from. What does it mean? It means booth or hut, the very thing that the Israelites were supposed to live in. This is the context of Jesus' teaching in John 7 through 9. I'm going to come back to that later. But this feast was very important for Jesus. I say that to you now so that you'll know that all these details are important for you. On the Hebrew calendar, it occurs on the 15th day of the month of Tishri, which would be late September flowing into October. It's a fall feast, and there's something very intentional about that. It was a seven-day long feast, five days after the Day of Atonement, and it culminated with a Sabbath day, but not the Sabbath day the way that you're thinking about it. Uh, Sabbath day in the sense of Colossians 2. Colossians 2, and it talks about Sabbath's plural. There was a Sabbath that occurred every week in Israel's calendar, and then there were special Sabbaths sort of inserted into the calendar on days other than the normal Sabbath day. And on that special Sabbath day, you would treat it like a normal Sabbath day, uh, and there would be much rejoicing. Think about this, a Sabbath day and a camping trip, where the people of God would go out and live in booths, these little huts, and they would rejoice together. But what did they have to rejoice about? Well, in many ways, uh, this was like a harvest festival and a camping trip combined. It was called the holiday by ancient rabbis, and it was among the three pilgrim feasts that Jewish males were required to attend. There were three times a year when Jewish males would leave wherever they happened to live, and they would travel to Jerusalem, unleavened bread, the Feast of Weeks, and this one, Tabernacles. When you think of Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills that we sang early, uh, that was a pilgrim psalm written for those that were traveling for these feasts. And the reason the psalmist looks up to the hills is because if you're traveling, you're vulnerable. There are things that creep at night and things that attack by day. 
they're not only wild animals, they're wild people. And so the psalmist, as he's traveling, he would lift up his eyes and he would sing. And if he reaches his destination, he would rejoice. As Israelites traveled to make this feast to Israel, uh, they were not to come empty-handed. Deuteronomy 16, 16, they were not to come empty-handed because of all that God had put into their hands. And you begin uh, to get more and more a sense of what this feast is about. It's kind of like their version of our thanksgiving, where you stop to express thankfulness for all that God has provided, not only spiritually, but even materially. It, it, It was truly a fall festival. And involved great sacrifice. Each day of the feast, they would offer goats, lambs, rules. Uh, rules. You know what a rule is? It's part ram and part bull when the preacher confuses two words together. So let me try again. There were goats, lambs, rams, and bulls every day of the feast, and they would decrease in number. It was during this feast that King Solomon dedicated the temple. It was on the last day of this feast that the Shekinah glory of God descended and filled his temple, the Holy of Holies. This was a time of prayer, and that prayer functioned in two ways. On the one hand, uh, they would pray in a certain sense looking back, but they would also pray looking forward. And, and you'll find it a little bit strange, but just hold on here. Uh, one of the chief features to the prayer was for rain. Rain was central. Rain was essential, and it was a very meaningful part of their agrarian lifestyle. Uh, If you were to travel to Israel, it would actually be a lot like here. And if you live here, especially a little bit east of the ocean, you know how important water is. Without it, it's kind of hot out there. Without it, it's kind of dry out there. I marvel that people keep moving to Phoenix. Uh, You should take the hint if nothing grows naturally there on its own. It's telling you something. You need water to live. You need water over there. You needed water in Israel. But this prayer attached to Thanksgiving uh, flows that way because rain came the previous year. The reason that Israel would celebrate this year is because God answered their prayer last year for rain. And because that rain came, things grew that they could eat, and that's why they're still alive. So the rain from last year leads to the harvest this year, which is why there is so much joyful thanksgiving. And it acts in a beautiful point. God had not simply saved his people and brought them out of Egypt. God had been pleased to sustain them yet one more year. We often take these things for granted. Our daily bread. We get so used to grocery stores, and now uh, Amazon will deliver to your front door. It's almost uh, too easy. And it can incline the people of God to take these things for granted, to just sort of assume that food will always be there, just sort of assume that it's always going to be this, this easy. Israel, living out in the wilderness, knew every year if they did not have rain, they did not have life. And when God gave rain, they had much reason to be joyful and to express their thanksgiving. So it was not simply an expression of thanksgiving for the rain that had come. It was also a prayer for the rain that would come In the forthcoming winter, little known fact, did you know that Israel and London get almost the same amount of rain each year? And yet the difference is London gets it all spread throughout the year, and in Israel it comes all at once. 
mostly in the wintertime. Again, kind of like here. When do we get our rain? Not in July. Those 18 sprinkles last week that traumatized and surprised many of us have the same effect in Israel because it doesn't rain in the summer. So in the fall, when they have their harvest, they would give thanks for the rain that came and they would pray for the rain they were hoping would come because without it, there would be no life. So they would make this pilgrimage then to Jerusalem. And when they got there, this is where it gets really fun, especially for those of you that like to camp. Uh, they would build their booths, little tabernacles with the branches that were described, olive and palm and other kinds, all around Jerusalem, with the temple being something of an epicenter. Uh, it's beautiful, actually, if you can imagine it uh, in your mind. They would literally try to pitch their little tents as close as they could to the temple, to the presence of God. In fact, uh, because of Sabbath travel rules, which is a little bit uh, awkward, uh, they would try to not be even a half mile away from the temple. Everyone would be condensed together. It's not too hard to picture. Just drive to L.A. No one was more than a half mile from the city center. Uh, But unlike those that you see camping all over the streets of downtown L.A. or San Diego, uh, those were tattered waifs, stripped of their dignity by drugs, depression, and death. But at the Feast of Booths, it was the perfect opposite. These are the people of God gathered together as they all draw near to God with joy and thanksgiving. We think about it. uh, It's beautiful. The people of God together on a camping trip. A people who even though they have no place in this world, in a certain sense, they know their place in this world because they know its creator. People with purpose and direction because they know the Lord who leads them, the shepherd who guides their way. People who have on this fall Thanksgiving day much to give back because they know how much they have freely received. And they were camping in little huts made out of palm and olive branches and other things. Reminds us of Israel in the wilderness. It's supposed to. It's supposed to take us back in a certain sense to remember when the people of God came together out of Egypt. In a certain sense, they were living in the already and not yet. They were already brought out of Egypt. They were not yet finally home. And in many ways, that's the Christian life now still, isn't it? Already saved. Not yet home. God had provided them, however, Little homes, in the desert, in the wilderness, little leafy huts and booths. And in the midst of their littleness, on their little way to a great big place, they had all that they needed, and that was the point. Yet one more year, God had provided temporary shelter for his pilgrim people. Their true home yet lay off in the distance, but God would not only get them there, God himself would meet them there. One of the most beautiful things that you pause to think about as Israel builds their little tents and makes their pilgrim way down to Israel is that God was not simply their destination. God is also at the very same time their travel partner. The one that they go with is the one that they go to. God went camping with his people. And if you think that's a silly way to put it, tabernacle means literally tent. God brought his tent too. So apparently God is on that side of those who actually like camping. But thus far we've talked primarily about the shelter. I want to say just a little bit, not nearly as much, about water and light. These other essential ingredients for a meaningful camping trip. Water and light. And and I'm bending these towards the spiritual direction that they're intended to go. For this Feast of Booze was an intense time of spiritual reflection 
And somehow water became like a metaphor that was central to it. On the days of these feasts, there were three symbolic pouring out rituals. Uh, In the first one, the high priest would carry a golden pitcher and he would take it down to the pool of Siloam. And then he would carry that water back to the Temple Mount and he would pour it out and there would be great singing and rejoicing. The second one, there was a nearby stream named Matzah. And water was brought from it to the temple and poured out on the sides of the big altar. And again, the people of God would sing and rejoice. And then finally, the high priest took water through the water gate that is mentioned here in Nehemiah 8 to the great stone altar of the inner court of the temple. And there he would pour it out and he would read from Isaiah 12 that we read this morning as our call to worship. Hear the language. With joy you will draw water. Now listen. From the well of salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the well of salvation. All of these little symbols, these three outpourings, on the one hand spoke of God's providing water for his people, which brought life. Israel teemed with life because water, living water, flowed. And these... These ceremonies were attended by great processions, singing in joy. It would be be loud. The people listened as a large choir gathered of the Levites. And they sang what is referred to as the Hillel, Psalms 112 through 118. So you imagine the priests doing these different things, pouring out water here symbolically. The priests singing loudly from the Psalms. And the congregation, as the priests would pour their water out, and the Levites would sing. The congregation would wave their palm branches in the air, and then them themselves sing responsively uh, from Psalm 118, particularly verse 25, that says this, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send prosperity now. You can see what's going on. Israel's having a feast. The people of God are celebrating. Water once more has flown. The people of God are gathered around the temple of God. It really is A beautiful trip. But it's also easy to miss the point. And and this becomes the sort of sad part for a moment in the sermon. It becomes easy to miss the point. It becomes easy, on the one hand, for the people of God to celebrate the earthly provisions that God has granted to us in this world and to reduce all of their celebration and all of their focus to earthly things. It's a strong temptation then. It's a strong temptation now to, in a certain sense, miss the point of God's salvation, to miss the point of God's provision. And many of us are like this, just like the people were in Nehemiah 8 or the people in Jesus' day. Many of us can often go along the lines of this thinking in our minds. Lord, give us food and water. Lord, give us shelter Maybe a couple vacations a year, a little bit of prosperity, and possibly even a camping trip. And that's all I need. That's all I want in this world. Which is a certain way of saying, all I want in this world is more of this world. These three ceremonies together celebrated water But they also had a movement towards light. On the second evening of the feast, the outer court of the temple would be lit up. When the Bible refers to 
uh, the church as a city set on a hill. It's actually uh, drawing from a reflection on the temple itself. When Israel gathered together for these feasts and light this thing up, uh, you could literally see the temple from miles away in the darkness. It would be like, a, like, like coming to a big city. When you've been out driving someplace remote, there's so much light coming from the city, you almost don't need your headlights any longer. It would be bright. It would be breathtaking. It was set up on a hill in such a way that it stood out almost like a lighthouse. And in the fall sky, it would be visible from many miles away, even bright enough that the people of God walking on foot could travel by night. And it added to the idea again that the temple was the light of the world. Let me pause here. I want to just try to tie a little knot together as we stage our transition to the third point. What were those four ingredients needed for camping? Do you remember? Don't say them out loud, but this is a test. Okay? You need water, you need light, you need shelter, and you need food. But is that all Israel needed? More of this world. Was that all God intended to provide for them? More of this world. Was that all that they had to be thankful for? And all that they had to prayerful look forward to? And the answer, of course, is no. Be with me here. Israel needed something more. The people of God needed something more. More than just water, light, shelter, and food. More than earthly prosperity. Yes, even more than a temple. And believe it or not, something even better than a camping trip. Why? Because if there's one thing that runs like a thread through Nehemiah chapter 8, it's that the Word of God is not simply read by the people, it's the Word of God that is reading the people. And it's, as it searches them and finds them out, it also condemns them. Don't forget from last week, their first response to the reading of God's Word was heavy weeping. Piercing, weeping, as though confronted, as though called out, as though unmasked, as though unclothed, as though standing there once more naked and ashamed before the word of God and the God of that word. There the people of God had been searched and founded and found wanting. They needed more than the Feast of Weeks. They needed more than the Feast of Tabernacles. They needed more than the Feast of Booze. Chapter, chapter begins with weeping because sin leads to death, but the chapter ends with rejoicing because the Lord of the feast we come to know is our beautiful Savior. And that is our third and final point. We have to spend a few minutes talking about Jesus and this feast. In a certain sense, without Jesus, the feast comes to an end. And if God should even continue to provide for his people bread and water, food and shelter, Longer life is not the same thing as eternal life. But here again, the quote from the ancient rabbi, He that hath not beheld the joy of the drawing of water has never seen joy in his life. But there are other rabbis who recognize that the glory of God that came to the temple during this feast left the temple because the people of God did not heed his word. Those very same rabbis believed that the glory of God that had departed would return, and in particular in the days of the Messiah. And you read about this in Ezekiel 43. And there was a beautiful hope, a hope that rose above the feast, that the Messiah himself would come to his temple, 
And that when he did, they would recognize him as the star that came out of Jacob, that he himself would be the light of Israel, that they would call him the light of the nations, the light of the world, a burning lamp, a sun of righteousness, part of the Hillel. Psalm 118.25 is the first thing Jesus says when he comes to the feast. Hosanna. And you know what that means? Save now. For blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when did he come to the feast? In John 7. It is on the last day. It is on the high day during the feast when Jesus returned from the Mount of Olives to begin his teaching ministry in the temple. This is the scene of John 7 through 9. If you have time this afternoon and want to do something devotional as a follow-up, read John 7 through 9 against the backdrop of Nehemiah chapter 8. You'll understand clearly and perhaps with joy why it is that Jesus proclaims that he himself is the light of the world because this was a nickname for the temple. Why he proclaims that if anyone thirsts, rather than come simply to the temple, they should come to him and out of him would flow living water, life-giving water, water that rises above the stream of this present evil age, water that satisfies not simply the body but even the soul, water that no man can buy and only God can give. But he was making a bigger point. In saying this, he was claiming not simply to have come to the temple, but that he was actually the temple incarnate and the Messiah's the Messiah as well. And proof of that is that when you read John 7 through 9, there's great controversy, sad controversy, because the very people for whom Jesus came to give his life to his own people, by them he was rejected. And the priests and the Pharisees are at the top. How ironic is that? That the priests who were the guardians and the guides of the temple, the stewards of the feast, as you see in Nehemiah, drawing all the way back to the Pentateuch, it would be they who would turn upon the Messiah, the Lord of the temple, when he came. And the Pharisees were in it with the priests. If the priests were in charge of the temple, the Pharisees were in charge of the synagogue. They were the main teachers of the law. They were the experts in religion. And they, too, turned against the light of the world. They both wanted, and this is the point from earlier, they both wanted one thing, and that's for life to stay just the way that it was. All they really wanted was longer life in this world. More bread, more water, more light, just shelter. Earthly peace and prosperity often eclipse the things of God. Earthly desires For the peace and comfort that this world sometimes promises often become enough to eclipse the work of the Messiah, even as it did in John 7 through 9. Life was good just as it was. It even came from people of God with camping trips. What more could there be? There was no room for Jesus in their hearts. There was no room for Jesus in their life. And in their mind, there was no room for Jesus in this world. That did not change who he was. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light of the nations. He is the light of Israel. And he rightly said to those who are willing to hear, He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Think again of those pilgrim people traveling. They knew what he meant. There is a greater reality of darkness than even that found outside the temple of Jerusalem in those dark, foreboding hills. This is why when Jesus comes to the temple and begins speaking, he does not simply speak, but
but he acts in ways that reveal exactly who he is, the nature of his work. It's wonderful, again, to read through John 7, 8, and 9. In John 9, he heals a blind man. Where does he send him? To the pool of Siloam to draw water and come back, just like the priest would do. Why? Because Jesus is not only the Messiah incarnate, he is the new temple, and he has come to bring life-giving water. He is all they need. He is everything they need. He is their water. He is their light. He is their food. He is their shelter. He is in John 8, the great I am of Israel. Not simply the one who is sent, but also the one who incarnates the very presence of Jehovah, the living word, the God of Israel, who is the great I am, who has come in this flesh, his earthly tent of his body. But he comes not to ask for salvation, but to bring it. He is the Hosanna of Israel, the Lord who saves. He is the one who is truly blessed as he comes in the name of the Lord. And he comes not simply to bring the word of God, but to be the word of God, to incarnate the word of God, and to bear the curse for those who have broken the word of God. And this is why coming all the way back to John 7, there he meets this woman caught in adultery, and they want to put her to death. But Jesus rather gives her a foretaste of eternal life when not only does she live, but she is washed and cleansed from her sins and told to go and to do no more. And then there is the blind man who himself embodies the curse of this present evil age. He who sat in darkness would open his eyes when Jesus spoke and he would see a great light. And on that day, drink living water in the presence of the one who travels with him and the one to whom he would go. Those who are spiritually blind, however, cannot see the light of the world. And there were people then who were blind, just as there are people now who are blind. Those who are spiritually blind not only cannot see the light of the world, they don't know how to go camping. They think it's all about a Coleman tent, or a tent and a Coleman stove. But without God to celebrate, what joy is there on a camping trip? Jesus came to bring more than earthly joy. He came to bring more than earthly provision. As he says in John 7, 37-39, he came to bring and to bestow his spirit. What the people of God truly needed was the spirit of God within their hearts. The same spirit that came to the temple. The same spirit that dwelt in Jesus. That same spirit Jesus said he would go away but send. And when that spirit came, then his people would know true joy. To know true joy is to know God through Jesus Christ and to have His Spirit within you. That's why from the last week, the joy of the Lord is our strength, because this week we see the Spirit of the Lord is our life. And those who have that Spirit have a lot to celebrate. We should be, carefully understand what I'm about to say here, a partying people. We should throw the best feasts. Jesus made and drank the best wine. Israel had the greatest reason to celebrate. And this is why he came. That by his life, death, and resurrection, even though we, on the one hand, stand pierced and undone, we are yet washed by his word, cleansed by the ministry of his life, death, and his resurrection. And now we have great joy. Because the spirit of joy dwells within our hearts It triumphs over this world, all that is dark, all that is threatening, all that is unlovely. And even as it did during the Feast of Booths, the Spirit of God inspires a song of thanksgiving in our hearts. We have some great songs to sing. And a great God 
to sing them too. But I want to end the sermon exactly where I began, by pointing out, rather awkwardly, that there are only two kinds of people in the world. And it has nothing to do with camping. There are those who are traveling with God to God. And then there are those who will be left in these tents. Those who are not going with God to God. Those who have no lasting joy, a true reason to celebrate, or even genuine song to sing. To say it simply, without Christ, you have no joy. But with Christ, if you have him, if you know him, you have the greatest reason of all to be joyful, to be thankful, and and you're actually on quite a camping trip. You are going somewhere. You are going to God, and God himself is going with you. He is not simply your destination. He is your travel partner. And as he did for his people Israel, so also does he do for you. He provides for you all those things that you need for your trip. Light. Water. Shelter. Food. And that's why the people of God sing. You are going to God. You are going with God. And when we get there, beloved... There's going to be a feast. Let's pray. One of the things that we enjoy so much about you, O oh God, is how creative you are. You didn't simply give to your people words to hear, to listen to, to simply obey. You gave them a life to live, a life that was filled with joyful creativity, a life that included camping trips where Families would go, and they would travel some distance, and they would live in these booths together, and children would ask questions about what do these things mean, and heads of households would open up the Word of God or echo uh, the Word of God in ways that they would understand together the things of God, and then they would sing, and how great that song was. When that city set upon a hill also became like a choir well stationed, the Levites singing from the Hillel, the people of God echoing certain portions of different psalms, and together all of them looking toward your holy temple, truly lifting up their eyes toward the hills. And we thank you, Lord, for all that we have in Christ. I ask, Lord, that this day, when many have gathered, have now sat under the ministry of your word, that none would depart from here in unbelief, And if any, O Lord, sitting here this day, do not yet know Jesus in a saving way, Lord, give them no joy. Give them no peace until they come to him through faith and repentance. And for the people of God, help us to remember that life is much more than a camping trip. Help us to remember that life is much more than food and water and shelter and these basic essentials. Help us to remember that life is defined by you, the author of our life and the spirit of life that dwells in our hearts Help us to remember Jesus and his perfect obedience to your word and his death upon the cross and his triumphant resurrection. And so as we travel, Lord, help us to remember that you are not simply our destination. Truly, you are with us. You will guide us. You will defend us. You will keep us to the end of our days. And for all these things, what else can we say but thank you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.